scroll over the screen. There's, there's a, a little red button at the bottom. I don't know why that's so hard. It? I, I found it up on the top menu. It's there. I got it. Where's the goddamn button Fuck on this it. thing? Why? Oh, God. <laughs> you are why a sentient. Are, why am I spending a Sunday like this? <laughs> Boy, that's, you know. God, you really do hear that. More and more you hear it. Where's the button, they say. But I tell you, we're going to have the best button. It's going to be big. It's going to be red. It's going to be the be biggest, reddest button we've ever seen. You're going to love it. Don't we love a big red button, folks? Everybody loves a big red button. So that's something we're looking into. It's basically like you just want Rudolph parked up on your desk. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Don Jr. can hunt him down. <laughs> I'm really looking forward uh, to that Christmas special in which he Don would get out of Rudolph. You know he would. Son he would. of a bitch. Oh, that dude is just like I shall kill. Yeah, that's exactly right. Forty percent of the country will eat that shit up. Yeah. Mm, the last unicorn, you say? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through Dumpness Timeline America. We are back. I'm Frank Spring, joined by Ellie Jacobs, truly a man for all areas, and the coach in waiting of the Cleveland Browns, Maggie Moore. Welcome back, everyone. Yes, welcome back indeed. Good to be back with you guys at the same place and the same time. Well, Finally. not really the same place, same digital place, which right. is arguably the same place, I guess. I don't know. Something, mm -hmm. something, something yeah. Zuckerberg sucks. Um, as always, sure. please be sure to leave comments and rate both positive and negative, either one, both. Even if you just want to say, I listened, and neither positive or negative, just leave a comment. This is actually, a podcast. <laughs> this is a podcast because we actually do want to make the show that you enjoy listening to and potentially join us at a live recording. A? Ooh. A? Intrigue. A. Yeah. Uh, and B, please. possibly a live recording. Indeed. Uh, follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in pterodactyl. And you can follow Maggie at Maggie M012, me at Ellie Jacobs and Frank at Frank Spring. Uh, so with that, guys, um, what are we talking about? So friends, it, we're not going to do a, a complete election uh, review. It's been a while. I think most of our listeners are probably following the, the broad contours of this, which is, oh, 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 wow, what a bloodbath this one turned out to be. Uh, especially uh, as the California results have been coming in, it's very clear that this was this was just an absolute demolition in the House. Uh, so Democrats, uh, good couple of weeks for Democrats, uh, better as the Orange County results come in, uh, and it becomes clear that the, the majority is even larger than uh, we had anticipated. But the big news on Capitol Hill, a couple of big pieces of news. Uh, the one that I think we want to we want to get off with is uh, there are. A large number of freshmen uh, have been coming in for freshman orientation, uh, newly elected uh, Congress folks, and one of them is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose arrival on Capitol Hill has caused people on both the left and the right to lose their fucking minds. I haven't seen someone provoke this much weirdness uh, in, in, in a very long time. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. So we're going to talk about why AOC... Weirdness is an interesting way to put it. <clears throat> yeah, it is. It, it is. It, it's it's, it's one by which I stand, Ellie Jacobs. Yeah, it's a good catch-all. 
Yeah, it is. It is a good catch-all. Um, I mean, there is obviously a fixation with with uh, with AOC, and we'll talk about why that why that is. But uh, for those who uh, are you know maybe catching back up with American politics, uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, defeated uh, incumbent uh, Joe Crowley, who was in line to be the next Speaker of the House in a Democratic primary back in the summer. Uh, she then coasted to a victory because it's a very it just beat him, crushed him. Yeah, she crushed him. She like yeah, exactly. Bug. That's exact. Just, just absolutely took him out, and uh, and then because it's a safe Democratic seat, she has now won her general election. She is. Uh, she was in in uh, in D.C. Uh, for for freshman orientation, and a number of people did a number of strange things. We're not going to recount all of them, uh, but amongst the highlights uh, have been uh, conservatives taking pictures of her. Uh, without her knowledge or permission and sharing them and saying, oh, look at, you know, she, one of her things is she comes from, a, you know, very humble beginnings. She has, you know, said before that she's, she's not a wealthy person entering Congress, that she's going to financially struggle until her government salary kicks in um, because she has to maintain two households in two of the most expensive cities in the country, uh, some foothold in New York and then somewhere in D.C. as well. Uh, but there's a, a conservative outlet took, or a conservative, uh, yeah, conservative outlet took a picture of her, shared it on Twitter and said, you know, judging by the, you know, the coat and the, and the jacket that she's, that she's wearing. Uh, this is not a girl who struggles. Uh, the guy who did that was ratioed on Twitter straight to hell, RIP that guy, um, not a moment too soon. But this, that gives you a, a sense of this there. When she that, said the thing was, about- That was about, one that, that, that it, it, so my wife is a fashion designer. She designs clothing for a mass retail brand and their goal is to provide good looking, good looking clothing for women at reasonable prices. Like that is their whole purpose of being. I don't know where AOC's coat was from and I neglected to ask my wife if she could figure it out and, and, and by spotting it. But I imagine we're dealing with, you know, no more than Banana Republic. Yeah, it, the idea that it's impossible to look good on a budget is completely absurd. Right. And I reflects, do it every day. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah that's, that's exactly right. And reflects, I think, uh, I, I declined to do so, uh, but uh, you know, but that's, that's a matter. <laughs> we respect of you for it. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. No, it's and for uh, Republicans to get all up in somebody's face about running credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just right. So it, it's been like this is a good example of like that's just a weird weird thing and and earlier on when she was saying she was going to have trouble affording it like they looked someone found her financial disclosures and is like oh she's got fifteen thousand dollars in savings like clearly she's not as poor as she thought I'm like this one was twenty eight or twenty nine years old like fifteen thousand dollars is it, like that's not a huge amount of money in New York and D.C. and also no. that's what yeah. she's got right like it's that's it. And basically, like what this has shown, like we're not going to take these things on a case by case basis. There have been too many of them, but it's that type of weirdness. I do, however, want to point out a couple of of strange tweets that have popped up uh, around AOC as well that reveal some of the discomfort on the left. The first, since deleted, uh, came from a Black Lives Matter uh, activist and uh, and also podcast host. And this is how you know, like you should look at anything he says or does with a jaundiced eye. Um, you know, any, anyone who takes to the airwaves in, the, in this way is, is, is truly suspect. Uh, DeRay McKesson uh, tweeted, again, has since deleted a tweet to the effect of, you know, uh, glad to see uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House, looking forward to her learning the rules and structures of Congress and putting them to work for the people. Right. Yikes. I know he did not say that about, for example, UC Irvine professor Katie Porter. Uh, elected out of uh, out of Orange, out of Orange County in the California California 45th, the fight in 45th. Uh, he did not say that about Susan Wild 
uh, elected out of Pennsylvania 7th. Uh, but he did reserve those thoughts for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So that is one very, very bad tweet, which he's since deleted. I would also like to, uh, I'd also like to report another, uh, what I would consider extremely poor tweet, uh, which goes as follows. <clears throat> extremely looking forward to when the reality of being a backbencher freshman and inconsequential member of New York delegation sets in. This was said about Ocasio-Cortez um, by a, a, a political analyst uh, who, who I think it probably for his dignity should remain unnamed. Area man tweets, not a great yes. take. It was a, yes, area man has bad take. <laughs> so I guess here's what I want to, so people, everyone got, people got varying degrees of weird about AOC. What is it about her? friends what is it right, about so it? i am not going to defend myself because i stand behind my tweet but i will say <laughs> okay let it be known you revealed yourself not us but i will we were say, trying to protect you everybody the the seven people who listen to this podcast all know who <laughs> area man is please that's true that's true I, my issue was specifically about her backing this campaign to 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 primary fellow democrats and my point being that hey, maybe you should take a vote in Congress before you decide that people have to pass an ideological purity test because being in Congress and fighting up from the outside are two completely different things. That's where my mind was at. Sure. So digging into the spirit of that a little bit, and also with the tweet that Frank was talking about earlier from, I think the journalist, weirdly, his last name is Scary, which is hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, he's Scary Although, again, he's dead now, so... Yeah, yeah, he's dead. Like, who? I don't even... I don't know her. Um, but it's not about the clothes, Right. Right. It's, it's not about the clothes. Like, and it's not a lot of the spirit and what people are actually saying, if you're looking at the subtext um, of this, is that you're attacking uh, or she's, a, she's an easy target because she's just other enough, right? She's young. She's a woman of color. She's attractive. Um, and she's a socialist or identifies as a socialist. Like, that's a, that's a huge threat to the institution of Congress and the people that are traditionally holding the, the the seats of power there. Um, so everyone is laser focused on her as sort of like this, um, this thing upon which they can foist their anxieties. And that happens a lot uh, with young women who try to like speak up or do something. And not just young women, anyone again, who's just slightly other enough to be deeply, deeply threatening um, so that it feels good and kind of smug when you're like, I can't wait till you're schooled. Who is that helping? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, like, it's, not, it's not really it's not really an interesting kind of take. And also like, God forbid, she tries to do something the second she steps foot into office. Like why, why are we chastising that? Honestly, does it make you feel better to, to sort of say to her, sit down little girl? I don't know. I, I think for a number of folks, it does make them feel better. And, and there is also, there's a really good exchange on this between uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom. If you're all are not following Tressie McMillan Cottom, you should, she's a great Twitter follow. Uh, really very thoughtful and very uh, very engaging person. Uh, and I think it was Roxanne Gay, they had a public exchange about uh, why, but it was particularly about DeRay and about what he said and raised the question of why. And, and, and Cotton made a really good point, which is, the, uh, which I think is important. Ocasio-Cortez also has a huge amount of charisma, right? Like it, it's her, it's how charismatic that, that she, she is that's driving people crazy, right? She's not the only... Uh, she's not the only radical or unusual or other figure to enter uh, Congress this cycle. I mean, you know, uh, you know the uh, uh, Therese Davis, uh, who's uh, you know former MMA uh, uh, gay uh, Native American, was elected in Kansas. 
all, that's all, uh, you know, those are, those are, those are pretty other, those are pretty other categories. (laughs) And, and now there's been some, some criticism of her, but, and this is not to say she's not a charismatic person. She actually is very appealing and a very good communicator. Uh, but she doesn't have the national profile of AOC and she doesn't seem quite as much, uh, at, at least to have emerged into that kind of a leadership uh, position on the left yet. So a lot of it is the fact that AOC is so good uh, at, you know, at, at motivating people at, you know, at playing a leadership role from the left. I think that's what's really driving a lot of people crazy. The, and, you know, on the, on the right, it's she's just a threat to everything they believed in. And on the left, there is a sense that like she's like people like her aren't supposed to step into leadership this quickly. Right. And I think um, one other thing is sort of like uh, the, the adage of like, if your vote didn't matter, people wouldn't be working so hard to take it away. Uh, it's like if, you know, for, for all of the like sh- on the right, all of the like shooting her down or undercutting her or saying like she's too young or isn't going to achieve anything, like they wouldn't be saying that unless they were actually afraid of any kind of power that she has. Um, well, I think the right is legitimately terrified of her because right. they see her either as uh, what is to come from the coasts or um, of the threat that they're just going to be under in in general. And, you know, when you look at the, the, um, what what are their names? I keep forgetting. Uh, Ilan Omar or Rashida Tliab, right? Like that's about, it's also about as far other as you can get, but they're not coming under the scrutiny. So some of it, I think, is AOC has been on the national scene a lot more. The second she beat Joe Crowley, she was headline news in every paper across the country because even before that, people were looking at her. She had a couple great campaign ads, like yeah. I, like yes, to to yeah. bolster what you were saying. Yeah. Like yeah, she was like people were talking about her even before she. Yeah, she so she's that. straight up been, and you know, because she was in a safe seat, she could fundraise across the country. Like she's right. been everywhere. So that like that's thing one is that she's just been on the scene a lot longer and been able to um, um, amass more attention. I guess just because she's been at it longer. Um, I think another key factor is once you go out and label yourself a socialist, you're now putting yourself on a pedestal that the left can go after because they're not like people on the left aren't even thrilled with some socialists. Some, most, all, I don't know. I don't know how it works anymore. Um, and then I think the that, third- going around, buddy. Yeah. And I think, I think the third thing is there is something, you know, I, I will be the guy with, you know, approaching it with, you know, the institutionalist-ism or whatever- when you look at, you know, superstars like when Barack Obama came into the Senate or when Hillary Clinton came into the Senate, they both went out of their way to avoid coverage, you know, avoided media requests, spent time getting to know their colleagues before they started. Well, neither of them really threw any bombs, but that's because the Senate's different than the House. But I think when the right looks at somebody like AOC, they see the potential of a Newt Gingrich-like figure who's coming in and breaking shit from day one. And that's what terrifies them because they know how it works. They saw what Gingrich did, then they saw what the Tea Party did to their own parties. And they're looking at it being like, oh shit, we know what this, we know, we know this thing. You guys, aren't, you guys don't even know what this is because you've never had this experience. We've had this thing three times in the last 20 years. That's a really good point. Her, her self-evident, I wouldn't say, it, it, wouldn't, it would be wrong to say contempt for rules and structures uh, because I, I don't think that's accurate. Uh, but her self-evident uh, impatience with rules and structures that she thinks impede the mission that sent her uh, is, yeah, we, we don't usually get that. Like usually the Democratic Party, strangely for the party that's meant to be a little less, uh, you know, a little less orderly and structured and, you know, and sort of represent a kind of a little more small D Democratic worldview, has tended to enforce and value, you know, waiting in line, being part of some sort of machine 
even more so than Republicans, who again, like have one of their most famous figures, Gingrich, just, I mean, his whole notion was we're just going to burn this thing straight to the ground. A hundred percent. And like for, um, but we as, and we using the royal, we as society are much more comfortable uh, with having it be men who move fast and break things. Like that is an entrepreneurial sure. and valued um, identity yeah. and um, set of skills or like, you know, spirit um, in, in young men. Um, and the second that she does it, it's like, whoa, and everyone freaks out, um, which I find so baffling. Like, you know that this is only okay um, for guys. So like, can we all just like collectively get a grip and realize that that's part of where this is coming from? So one person that I think has handled this, that's, that, I think that's absolutely right. And there, there's a good model for, I think, how to handle this in a sincere way, but also politically. How, you know, what do you do if you're confronted, if you're part of a, <clears throat> an aging and threatened establishment? What do you do if you are, if you are confronted with an AOC? Uh, I can tell you one person who actually has handled this incredibly well, and that's Nancy Pelosi. Uh, there was a, a, you know, an incident earlier uh, during uh, freshman orientation in which there was a, a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office uh, with activists who were urging her to uh, do more and make climate change a much bigger part of the, 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 the emerging Democratic platform in Congress. Can I also uh, say, I think of all the um, uh, pointless, not going to get you anywhere tactics anybody could take as a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office, of all people. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there is a real, like, I mean, there, there is a question about what is this going to do in the short term? The answer is not a whole hell of a lot. Um, at the well, same I'm time- I'm specifically talking about it being Pelosi's office, not a sit-in in general. Well, we're going to, yeah, we're going to come to, uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to come to, to, to her in a second uh, and, and kind of the, the new, what, you know, what the next speaker yeah. uh, could do. But, uh, so there's a sit-in there, AOC went, which is uncommon. It's not necessarily common for a sitting or an incoming member of Congress uh, to join a sit-in in a colleague's, uh, colleague's office. This was, this was food for the Dems in disarray story, which has been running basically forever. Uh, that's a perennial story that we're always meant to be in disarray regardless of how we're doing. Uh, but if you actually look at what came out of this, uh, AOC very cannily uh, restructured the, or reframed the entire exercise, the sit-in and her involvement as we want. We have, you know, when climate change comes back on the Democratic Party priority list, uh, we have to let uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi know that we we have her back. That was her approach to what this act. That's how she characterized this. So this was meant to be a demonstration of their enthusiasm and support for Nancy Pelosi when climate change gets back on the agenda. Uh, Although she still has yet to say that she supports Pelosi as speaker. And sure, this is we're coming to that. Uh, and Pelosi's response to AOC was to congratulate, was to welcome her energy and enthusiasm, and basically to bear hug her. And it's called a bear hug. And this is, which was a very cannily done piece of work. Also, I think it was probably more or less sincere, but whether it was or not, uh, to bear hug, a, to, when, you are when you encounter an AOC, the only thing you can do is bear hug her. Because as we have seen, the action is the reaction. If your view, if your response to, AOC, to an AOC is to tell her to mind her place, uh, you, you, are, you, you are doing exactly what she needs you to do, what the AOCs of the world need you to do. Um, in order to further, in order to further legitimize them, and, and again, I'm not saying she should not be legitimized. I, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, but but the, but uh, new challengers and insurgents like AOC uh, thrive on, uh, on on a weakening establishment trying to stop them. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Pelosi, 
Yes. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi, um, I did want to then talk a little bit about um, the speaker race um, because, you know, when one election is over, we got to run right to the next one because I'm a junkie. So let's do it. Oh, don't worry. Um, Primaries start in what, like seven days? God, I just want to die. I yearn for death. Anyway, <laughs> um, that got too real. Apologies. That's uh, I mean, 2018. Yeah. Listen, we're all there. At one point or another, uh, we're all there. Death. Actually, uh, J- uh, John Podhoritz, who's the editor of Commentary, he tweeted out this morning something like uh, four words to describe 2018. So, Maggie, you just did. Maggie, you just did your four words. I yearn for death. <laughs> I yearn for death. Mine was. My, I think mine was pour me, pour me another drink. Yep. Sure. Yeah. For sure. Which will take you to death if you go too far. So, like, we're all on brand here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, so the speaker race um, is heating up and essentially it's like Nancy Pelosi versus the white guys, which honestly is the worst band name I've ever heard in my life. Um, also the, less, the lesser loved uh, sequel to Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm not going to lie here. I don't entirely understand people's ire towards Nancy Pelosi or why she has become such a firebrand um, figure for the right and for the left. Um, and I think we're also now, just with the topics that we've chosen, um, are showing the, the juxtaposition of women in leadership. If you're too young, you're easily dismissed. If you're too old, you're also easily dismissed. People only really want to listen to you if you're like 40. Um, so... I know that there are criticisms lobbed at her, like we need, um, we need new leadership, we need fresh blood, we need fresh ideas. Uh, and so we're watching this really interesting clash of like new ideas, Ocasio-Cortez, and establishment, deep-rooted democratic politicians who've been in for a long time, Nancy Pelosi, exploding into one another. Um, so yes, talk to me about then the folks that are running against her and what y'all have been reading criticism wise about Nancy Pelosi. So for starters and really importantly, no one has stepped up and said they're running against her. At, this, like, at this point, Marsha Fudge has kind of come forward and said, so it's not really just the white guys against Pelosi. It's Marsha Fudge and Kathleen Rice, the Congresswoman from Long Island. Although but both of them are perceived as being part of a cabal that started with, right. uh, with two white guys. Right. Two white guys being Seth Moulton and uh, Tim Ryan from, from, uh, from Ohio. Um, I mean, I said last week, Maggie, I said that in my ideal world, and apparently the editors of Political Playbook were listening to Taking Ship because they wrote this up as an idea earlier this week. In an ideal world, I think that Nancy Pelosi, let's, she should be speaker, but let's have a cutoff point where we can bring in some new blood. But like, is, no, like, is that then the main, I say, let's just back it up then. Like, why is right. that the ideal world that she needs to then be stepping aside? Because, so Nancy Pelosi is no doubt has a better hold on the Democratic caucus than anybody else could currently. She is a phenomenal fundraiser. I think, what was it, one out of every $2 Democrats raised over the last year and a half was raised by Pelosi herself, which is just like an absurd Smoking percentage. Hot. I just, quite, yeah, I don't know if, the, if that percentage was Maybe it was the official the, Democratic dollars, not the, yeah, like, they were going to party structure, not going to, 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 to PACs. I think it was like yeah, going to the party it. structure, like the D-Trip or the DNC, DNC directly, I think. Yeah. Her numerical total was $130 million. Which is insane. Oh my God. Which is, yeah, I mean, yeah, she's one of the greatest political yeah. fundraisers in the history of political fundraising. And she's also happens to be a very, very good strategist and vote counter, which is what you want from a speaker. However, and I, this, this, I have the same thing about uh, Clyburn and Hoyer. Y'all are like, you know, on the far end of, uh, of, of 
your expiration dates. We need to get new people in there, particularly if Democrats want to control the House for an extended period of time. So it's not so much that Nancy Pelosi is a firebrand and the Republicans are just going to run against her every two years. It's that to effectively control the House, you need to have younger people in positions of power. So in my ideal world, Nancy Pelosi takes control of this, of this unruly caucus that we've been discussing. And I think that the, you know, the, the media interpretation of the you know, in-house fighting is, is, is unbelievably exaggerated, but media thrives on, 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 on discontent. So they're gonna, that's what? the direction they're going to go. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Let's wait a beat. We're going to let that one sit in for everybody. Woo. Media looks for confrontation. But I think that let, let Nancy Pelosi get this thing running. Let her get all these, get, like, get people into leadership positions, whether it's you know, deputy whips or into committee assignments, whatever it might be. People who can, you know, two, a year and a half from now, two years from now, in 2020, in 2020, step up into leadership roles with some experience as opposed to just coming at it, you know, fresh newbie person. Um, but let's have some, some of that hardcore ability, talent, and institutional knowledge that only she and her leadership team bring to the table. Let's take advantage of that over the next 6, 8, 10, 12, 18 months. But let's be sure that there are th- that there's systems put in place. And I don't think Marsha Fudge is the future of the caucus either. I don't necessarily think Kathleen Rice is either. And God, God love him, Seth Moulton is also not. Um, as has been made abundantly clear over the course of the last two weeks. Yeah. Seth Moulton, yeah. sort of friend of the pod. Um, we hope. Vicarious friend of the pod. Or maybe not anymore. Maybe Ooh. not anymore. We're about to yeah, dunk on him. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. This is, this is very much a, uh, a friends not letting friends drive drunk thing here. I mean, this. Like, you, Edward Love. Yeah, you've been out, yeah, you've been, you've been, you've been out yeah. a little too far in front of this thing there, Chief. Like, yeah. this, this, yeah. this horse has died under you. Get off, God damn it. Yeah, oh. yeah, and maybe it, it, and I honestly think it may be too late. Like, oh boy! It, oh no, he's burnt himself. It's, it's. I mean, he's now he has no option but to run for president. Same, extremely same. Yeah, but, uh, um, but it, it, I mean, it brings up, it brings up, bringing it back to to Pelosi. There is clearly um, some per, some percentage of the caucus that is absolutely opposed to her whether it's, you know, the 20 people that voted for Tim Ryan two years ago or wherever else it breaks down, there is some percentage of it. Plus throw in all the people who campaign saying they're going to vote against her. Um, that's a tough one to flip-flop on because that's going to be the number one attack ad against you. How many years. of those people won, though? How many people that were running using that as like right. campaign so products won and are in office? Right. Maggie, Did I think we talked about that last week. It, Did it was we? Like some, no, no. I blacked we, out. My brain yeah. threw it overboard. Yeah, yeah but no, but it was, that was the point we were making. Like a lot of those people were running in, in no-win positions but there were also a lot of people who did win who took that pledge you know i'm thinking like connor lamb or the guy in colorado or or andy andy kim in new jersey yeah these are yeah and that's going to be a tough real like there is a there is a map of reelects in which opposing pelosi was you know was part of i think their ability to yeah part of their ability to win now the argument for this uh ellie is for the the system you just described is for there to either be a public agreement or in, the, in an ideal world, there's a private understanding. Exactly. 
And but the problem is with this caucus, you never know how private something is going to be. Well, you but, can never assume anything's private when you've said it to more than one person. Right. Exactly. That, that this is this is good advice. Uh, Ellie gives us good advice as he so often does. Uh, so yeah, you can never assume it's private. But to, I mean, if you could keep it private, that would be the ideal world in which there's an understanding that she's going to be here for, as you say, a year, eighteen months, and then move on. Uh, that would also allow those people to run on a. We, I mean, they will. There will. There will have been the like voted with Nancy Pelosi X number of times. First, I think there. I mean, those ads will have been will have been run. But if you're Andy Kim, you know you can, and she is not the Speaker of the House, or is no, or is an outgoing Speaker when you are running for re-election. You can legitimately say, um, you know, I didn't. You know, I, I don't. You know, I did not support the continued leadership of Nancy Pelosi, and she's leaving. Yeah. And I was so and I was part of that. It's a bank shot. It's not perfect, but like right. it's better than blowing off your own foot. Which and and I have been uh, critical of Pelosi. I think not as an individual, but as part of a group of a part of a leadership of the Democratic Party. That I mean, you know, I mean these they are the generation for which things largely worked. Which is not to say they had a right. you know they didn't have their own yeah. struggle to succeed. They mm-hmm. sure as hell did. But the systems largely well, Pelosi, worked. Not so much herself, but other right. people. But the system, well, I mean, but the systems worked largely worked for, uh, for you know, for a lot for a lot of the older members of Congress, right? Like white members, the, yeah, yeah, you know, the white members, Definitely. of course. That is, and and Elliot's a really good point. Like this, this system, when we say the systems has worked, it has worked specifically for a group of Americans, and that's white. And people. and Frank, this goes back to something that we've talked about over and over again. I think it is the idea that the American dream of you work hard, you play by the rules, you get ahead. Yeah, that's, that's that's exactly it, right? Like mm-hmm. the things that were supposed to work largely worked for them. They they had student loans they could repay, and there were people who. Were, I mean, I'll give you another example. This Susan uh, Susan Wild again from the Pennsylvania Seventh. A big part of her thinking of why she was running is she got a student loan to go to law school that made the difference between being able to go to law school and not set her up for her future. And that loan was incredibly affordable. And now she's working with longer, younger lawyers that are burdened with $250,000 worth of debt, their financial lives basically over before they begin, right? Like this is, and, and she is cognizant of this, uh, but there's a generation of leadership in Congress for whom the system worked and doesn't quite understand that, it, that the system has now, is now malfunctioning so badly that it can't, you, we can't just nudge it back to normal, right? Like this right. is where you get the AOCs. Right. It can't be slightly tilted one way or the other, so we just get it a little bit back on track. Right. A new one needs to be because, built. Because it's across the board failure. failure. It's, it's student loans failure. It's housing prices failure. It's healthcare costs exploding. I mean, it, it's right across the board. And then, then you start with you know, income inequality. Like, it, it's all across the board. So Right. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So if in an ideal situation we're talking about Nancy Pelosi, you know, saying publicly that she's going to step down, and doesn't that just immediately make her a lame duck? This is the thing that this is. Can really we actually thing. be fighting to yeah. like fix the system uh, for all the problems that y'all were just talking about? If she, if people know that she's going to be out later, like why even work with her? This is a this is a good question. In order to do this, because you're exactly right, the speaker needs to be able power. Power is what you can do now, but it's also assessed on your potential for future action. Right. This is why. Of Ellie's list of seventy-five Democrats who've been talked about running for office, you know, or whatever it is, hundred and ten of them, uh, you know, they're all, you know, uh, you know, it I'm doubles not, every time you say their name. That, like that's the exactly. <laughs> two hundred and forty-six Democrats yeah. have vowed to run for president. The reason that uh, the, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of these names are up there is these are either the candidate, the potential candidates, or their staffs putting their names out there so that that person will be perceived as having power because someone who might be president of the United States someday is perceived as having more power than someone who has no chance whatsoever. Right. 
Exactly. Right, within the context of this particular game. So you're absolutely right. The ability of a speaker to enforce order is in some degree dependent upon their, the perception that if you do not behave, they could get I will find you later and kneecap you. And kneecap you. And, 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 and the, absolutely will. Yeah, which, which, and, and which she has done before, and, yeah. and that's, that's her job. So yeah. what this requires is a very strong and very structured arrangement within the caucus for who her successor is likely to be or who her successors are likely to be, all of whom are read in on, if you fuck with us now, it will be remembered by whoever succeeds. This is yeah. a delicate time for the Democratic Party. Right. It is not time for your bullshit. Uh, you've, you know, you've got you've got to get in behind while we manage this incredibly difficult fucking situation at an at a moment that is absolutely critical for the party and for the country. Uh, right. Which again is why I would say, Seth, buddy, my friend, you 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 gotta you're licked. You gotta let this one go, Seth, buddy. Thank you. Next, my dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the, the words, words of Ariana Grande. We're not saying we're not saying Seth isn't a good dude and maybe president someday sometime down the line, but my dude. My dude. My dude. Go to the bar, drink, you know, he what he's the guy that drinks fifteen glasses of milk a day. Wasn't that in a political that's profile of him or something? Yeah. Like oh, go either God. have go either have your giant glass of milk. Also, my guy, stop drinking so much milk. My skin yeah. is crawling off of my body. Or maybe just go have a beer. <laughs> like just go saddle up to a bar like in Southie or something and have a beer. I, but I think Frank, you make the exact point, and like I, the the way to to way to structure this is essentially that if you keep the leadership structure, the big three, right? You keep Pelosi, Hoyer, and and Clyburn in for you know a limited period of time. You essentially have to have shadow government for them. Like there have to be people who you clearly have, you know, uh, um, who have clearly you know been appointed that this is they're they're next. Like, are we ever that organized? I don't know. Can you really like? I know that Nancy Pelosi is a whipping motherfucker, but like that that requires a lot of um, coordination and a lot of like, I will play by these rules and not try to like seek my own ambitions. Which like, I don't really know if that's going to happen. It's it's fair, and and but but I think fanfic. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't. But yeah, we're talking about the ideal world. I think that we could probably get some reasonable approximation of it. I think that like, yeah, we're not going to get something that orderly. I do think we could get a cabal of likely leadership, most of whom are on the same page, that there are certain things on which people don't get to fuck around. Uh, you know, don't mess with the investigations. You know, we're like, we're, we're rock solid during this period. Because, because this, again, this goes back to a point that, that, uh, that Ellie raised when we were talking about AOC, like, you know, doing a, a sit-in in Pelosi's office on climate change. You know, we can propose all the legislation that we want to on, on any fucking subject under the sun, and we probably will, because we want Republicans to have to take some dodgy ass votes and defend those yep. dodgy votes. There's a lot of utility in that. And also you are sent to govern. You might as well have a shot at it. But realistically, we have no legislative agenda because nothing is going to get through the Senate and signed by the president. It's just not going to fucking happen. So basically this ne- these next two years are about wrong footing some Republicans on some key votes uh, and, you know, and, inv- and, and doing all the investigations What's the initial list of subpoenas? 75 people. 84, I think. That 84, that good. It's another one. It's like the list of Democrats. There are more subpoenas than there are Democratic candidates for president. And you can't say fairer than that. Yeah. I, I would say that there's a third thing that has to be done. And this is where um, I'm going to jump back onto the, you know, Pelosi needs to be thinking about the future, is that you've got two years now where you finally have a majority and you're going to have to fight scrap tooth and nail to keep it in two years. So you got to be doing things right now that are going to put you in a position where you can continue to be in the majority two, four, six years from now. 
And some of that is making Republicans take dodgy votes. And some of that is making sure that Schiff and Nadler are doing the right thing with the investigations and they're being run appropriately, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But some of it also is all internal. Yeah. And a good, and, and, and getting a, and I don't have a, a, a pony on this one yet, but having a good successor to Ben Ray Lujan at the DCCC is going to be really, really important because it's been very fashionable to smack the DCCC. It's, I mean, it's been fashionable. I Sherry Bustos was stepping up to that. <laughs> There's a number, there are a number of candidates. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Sherry Bustos fan. Like, let's sure. make her speak. And, and, let's do everything. Not without reason. To do. Let's do it. She's done it and not without reason. There's a lot to like there. Uh, there, there, but there are a number of, like, there are a number of different approaches to what the DCCC will have to look like in 2020. But I will say they did some things. It's again, it's always been popular to smack them around. Sometimes they've deserved it. Sometimes not. It's a big institution that changes, you know, that cycles through staff and leadership every two to four years. Uh, so you're always dealing with a slightly different beast. But the leadership of, uh, of Ben Ray Lujan and the executive director, Dan Senna, have done something culturally for the DCCC, which is it's a much more open institution. It's been more agile. Uh, and it has done things it didn't usually do, like putting organizers on the ground in Orange County in 2017. Hey. Putting people on the ground in Texas. Right? Like that, like that stuff. That's not stuff that the, that the DTRIP usually does. But they did it. And, and, they, and they did it to great effect. And where they spent their money... They got good returns on it. Like there is no, even the most jaundiced, I don't even want to necessarily use the word jaundiced, but there, uh, there's, a, uh, there's, been a, there's a good project run by a, a guy with the terrific pseudonym Robert Wheel, Bobby Wheel, who writes on Data Progress and a couple of other sites, uh, who is, you know, takes a pretty critical look at spending and, and you know, has been very critical of the DTRIP in the past. And his conclusion, my conclusion, the conclusion of other folks is where they spent their money, they got good returns. So it's an institution that is running really well. Someone who understands the progress that it has made over the last two years, it's going to be critical to get someone into the DTRIP who is going to respect where they've been and to continue some of those initiatives and, and not to bring it back to a, a much more closed inside the Beltway DC model, which is kind of what it had before. Hey, speaking of uh, DTRIP spending money in, in places that they hadn't previously in Texas in particular, have they called the Gina Ortiz, Gina Ortiz's um, uh, Will Hurd race? I feel like, Yes. It's un uncalled as of Friday. Mm. Uh, but wait, I have all the information in the history of the world at my fingertips. Yeah. Can if only <laughs> there was a little box in which I could <laughs> put letters in to find an answer. But, to I, this but I think that one, you know, that my, my understanding from that one is that that's, it, it, it is sadly a loss. Um, now, do you know Ortiz Jones is someone who could very well operate? It's, not, it's not called and there's a possible recount. Yeah, that's that's what it's going to come down to. My understanding is that margin and the sort of internal projection. I, I, to be clear, I say this is not internal to Gene Ortiz Jones or to the DCCC. This is this is uh, coming from somewhere else. Is that that's not that this that one's not going to work out. Uh, but she is a candidate who could plausibly run on the on what is sometimes called the four year plan, uh, in which you challenge uh, a Republican in a in a midterm year and then you run against them again in a presidential year with the expectation that. Higher turnout in a presidential year for Democrats could lead to, to could lead to success. I don't. It's it's not. It's it's a. It can be a good model. It, it, you should deploy it carefully. Gina Ortiz Jones is one of those people that I think could could employ that model and win. Yeah, let's do it. I support that. Um, All right. Well, that should we? Speaking of meltdowns. Yeah. Why don't we jump across the pond? Um, there's. Yeah, can I get off this American ride? Let me off. I want to yeah. go over there. Yeah. There, <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah, really, go there, on. There are meltdowns happening everywhere. There are um, the Israeli government is on the verge of collapsing. Um, uh, within the next two Same. hours, um, extremely uh, safe. 
Bennett and um, uh, Bennett's going to be making an announcement, presumably that he's leaving the government, which will force early elections. But anybody who doesn't think Netanyahu will still be prime minister after those really doesn't understand the way Israel works right now. Um, But more importantly, um, to (laughs) Israel's former overlord, um, the British, the British Empire and uh, their attempts to, well, and their ability to say that they're a functioning government and leave the European Union at the same time has led to, well, Frank, pick, pick up the story. Yeah, it's, you know, we've, we've checked in with our... It's our not good. It's not, it's not good is the short answer. We've checked in with our sprightly friends across the pond periodically, and this, uh, this is just a, a short notice for you all. I suspect that after the events of the upcoming week or two, we'll want to get into this in a little greater detail. Uh, but basically, uh, Britain is on the point of melting absolutely the hell down. Uh, last week, Theresa May, uh, Prime Minister May, Uh, released a 500-page agreement that had been negotiated with the EU for Brexit. Turn pager. Mm, Yeah, exactly. It's it's riveting reading. There are a lot of parts of it that are clearly not great uh, because there is no good deal to be had here. Uh, Someone, I wish I could remember who this was. If you're listening and you know who you, and if you're listening and this was your tweet, please tell me. Someone said that watching, someone characterized the, uh, the British negotiations with the EU over the last year or more. It's like watching someone haggle with an automatic checkout machine at a grocery store. Uh, it just, <laughs> That's a good it's been, it, it really, I mean, it's just like, they, I mean, Britain just has no, has no leverage. So the fact that they were able to get any kind of agreement, any sort of concessions at all out of the EU is actually pretty impressive. So they came back with this agreement that would broadly end the movement of people that would keep Britain more integrated into the European economy. Uh, and, and critically, there were backstops to prevent a hard border in Ireland, which is where this thing had really fallen apart. It was in many respects. A lot of the deal that I think many Leave voters were probably hoping for, it ended the free movement of people, uh, which was, I think, the the big part of it. Judge of that motivation, what you will. Anyway, so the May government releases this thing. It prompts a resignation from a bunch of hard Brexiteer members of her government. A bunch of ministers are are resigning. It's pretty clear it may be difficult to get anyone else in from anyone else in parliament behind it. It's unlikely to pass. Uh, it's not clear that May is going to survive the failure of this deal. And the EU has said, this is it, that there is no more negotiation. This this was the deal. Uh, right. This thing all has to be wrapped up by March. Yeah. March 29th is, is, hard, is, is, is hard Brexit, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the crash out, which is Britain leaves the EU With nothing. without any kind of deal. Right. It just like Britain suddenly becomes a different entity. That's um, terrifying. In order to, yeah, it is terrifying because in order to have properly set up its own uh, infrastructure to regulate, you know, financially, you know, food and agriculture, uh, you know, you know, a, a fair amount of criminal justice, the tracking of movement, like all of this other stuff, in order to have set up the institutions they needed to for a hard Brexit, they would have had to have started before the Brexit vote occurred. Uh, and, and they certainly would have needed to have gotten on a very accelerated timetable last year. None of that has happened. They're just not ready for the crash out. Uh, but the crash out is coming. There is no consensus on what to do next. If you're looking at the numbers on this thing, uh, I mean, there's, there, you know, there, is, there isn't even, there's not a majority opinion on what Britain should do. Should they have another referendum? Should they agree to this deal? Should they try and negotiate again? Uh, you know, what, you know, what the hell should happen here? The only constituency and there isn't even a plurality for it. I mean, you're talking about of the options available, the most popular are in the high teens, right? No one knows what they want. And the one constituency in Britain that has been the most solid and what it wants throughout this whole process 
has been leave voters who are in favor of a hard Brexit. It's a small minority, but the one unshakable political rock in this process are people who want to leave and think that it'll be fine if they crash out. Spoiler alert, it will not be. So uh, y'all get your popcorn ready. This is going to be a weird week in British politics. Hey, Frank, one follow-up question before we, before we get out of here. Um, the EU doesn't care, right? Like they don't care what happens. with Like at this point, they're like, fuck it. You guys want it out? Fuck you. Oh, they have every incentive for this to go as badly as possible. Um, because what they don't it'll want keep everybody are, else in. Yeah, because yeah, what they don't want is everyone thinking that you can come and go and come and go as you please from this thing. Uh, you know, the the European it should be very painful to to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. It should. Yeah. And there was no so from the for, so from from the very beginning of of this, the EU's view has been, you know, they, they this is why this is where the uh, the negotiating with the checkout machine comes in. The EU just has no reason to play ball at all. The fact that that Britain was able to wring any concessions from them at all is really impressive. And I think a lot of this was, you know, I mean, you you don't necessarily want an imploding economy right offshore. Uh, Britain is a good trading partner. You, you I mean, you want that degree of stability. Uh, some of this is going to be lobbying from the Irish, uh, who have really been pushing for negotiations so that there isn't a hard border. Uh, that, that's you know obviously that's going to open up some really really painful memories, and, and not all of the memories either. A lot of this stuff is 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 still very much part of our times. So you know there there there's a little bit of an incentive uh, on the EU's part, but you know my read on the deal is it was a lot more generous than the Brits had any right to expect, and the fact that they're turning away from it now, I think almost certainly guarantees either a second referendum or more likely a hard Brexit. Well, the chaos apple does not fall very far from the chaos tree. So you really do hear it. Honestly. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, I feel great, you know, about the state of our worlds. I hope that y'all do too. Um, so thank you then all of you so much for listening. Um, even when we do yell at each other, which I think we kept it pretty civil this round so good yes, job I'm disappointed in us i well yeah but also like this is like the warm-up round for thanksgiving for fighting with your family yeah. so like you know we're pretty we're pretty on brand with that um and please as always um rate us on your favorite podcast platform because i love fishing for compliments uh and absolutely follow us at at taking ship and that ship with a p as in pomplemousse so with that french send-off frank where are we headed this week we uh, return this week to uh, some familiar, uh, some familiar waters in the Pacific Northwest, uh, where uh, a, a, a home, <laughs> ancestral home of the best po- uh, host on this podcast, um, and uh, where where a group of commercial fishermen in California and Oregon has sued dozens of oil and gas companies for hurting the fishing market in the Pacific North, uh, Ocean by raising temperatures on Earth. This is a really interesting uh, lawsuit uh, seeking financial compensation. From more, from more than 30 companies, the argument being the extract the oil and gas industries knew have known for 50 years that their industry was warming the earth, uh, and that uh, and that global warming is adversely affecting fishing. It's one of a series of lawsuits that I think we're going to see more of uh, in ways attempting to uh, to to hold someone accountable for climate change. Uh, we we at, at Taking Ship uh, had to do some thinking about this thing. Because while we do appreciate the efforts of the extraction industry to poison the ocean to death, uh, that's just not cricket. Uh, the fishermen are taking the fight to the creatures that live in the sea. Uh, that is, you know, that that is a noble and worthwhile endeavor. Uh, they're doing it the right way, uh, you know, and and you know, and uh, and comporting themselves with the honor and dignity that we expect from uh, from noble soldiers in the field, poisoning the ocean through climate change. 
is clearly outside the rules of engagement. It's not cricket and we won't stand for it. Uh, so we stand with the fishermen on this one as we do so often. Uh, friends, we take ship to the Pacific Northwest. Take care, everybody. Thank you.